Absolute Rally, powered by the Kielder Works team. Cordless tools tailored for the world of motorsport. Hi, this is John Desborough, and thank you for listening to this special edition of the podcast. We're about to go back almost 20 years to the spring of 2002. Richard Burns is world champion. Channel 4 is broadcasting every day of the WRC season live, and Richard and I are working on his book. We met about four or five times around Europe, usually after a rally had finished, to talk about his life. That autumn, the book Driving Ambition appeared. I recorded our conversations on a tiny little dictaphone, and I found them impossible to throw away over the past 20 years. The quality is poor, for which I apologise, but this is, importantly, Richard Burns in his own voice. Later, we talk about the 1998 season, an important one for him because it was his breakthrough to the big time. We also went back to the very, very beginning and the first time that he drove a car. But we start with the chapter we called, What It's All About. This is the Absolute Rally Podcast. So, we've got to take by the hand, we've got to sit in your seat, and we've got to get across to them the fact that this is no ordinary drive. This is not uh, a lift to the cinema. This is everything that's in your head that can describe what goes on in that car from the moment you get in. And if we're able to describe it with, to start the whole thing off with, this is like no other drive. Well, it's not like it isn't a drive. In many ways, it's, it's not like... When you get in a rally car and drive a rally car, more more on gravel and ice than on tarmac, but it isn't like driving a car. In what way? Because you always envisage a car going down a road, going around going around a corner. You imagine it sliding or whatever. But the fact is, on, on gravel, when when things are going perfectly, and on ice and snow the same, you're not. You're not driving a car. What you're doing, in a way, is taking... You're, you're just trying to get from the entry to a, of a corner to the exit of a corner with the highest possible speed. And that doesn't involve steering, generally. It involves using the whole energy of the car, the whole... Uh, momentum. Yeah, m- momentum... You have to get from the from the entry to the end, exit of the corner without losing any speed by taking the maximum amount of speed through that corner as possible. And that doesn't normally involve steering, to be honest. What's Everything the speed is might done. Be doing? It depends. It totally depends. But say even if it's a sort of 50 mile an hour corner or 40 mile an hour corner, the philosophy is still the same. You 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 get that car through the corner on the limit of the grip, and that doesn't involve that involves preparation right from the start of the recce, from the testing, from everything that involves preparation. But the, the preparation that's close to that corner is, is your entry, the whole momentum of the car, the turning and the, the physics of it. How do you know where the, where the end of the grip is? How do you know where your grip will stop? Experience. But on, on every stage, every corner, every bit of road? Virtually, not, not everywhere, but... You have a feeling because normally a stage is pretty much consistent from A to B, from from the start to the finish. You you would say that the grip is virtually the same. Right. When the grip isn't the same, 
then that's when you mark things in your post notes or you have your gravel note, your gravel crew to put things in when the grip isn't the same. So how much of a stage is this state where you're not driving its balance and its 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 grip and you're driving a car in a different, in a different to a certain way. extent every every corner okay the straight <laughs> they're pretty much the same as you would expect them to be but even then when you're going over really rough stuff you have to think about the positioning of the car and where you want it to land after jumps or bumps or whatever turn that off for a second um it's all, all the best days i've ever driven in my life yeah. have been totally focused on getting like the maximum exit speed out of every corner that's, that's of every goal. series of corners yeah maximum exit speed is always what you try and achieve but what goes through your head while you're doing that are you thinking you know yes correct to number one or are you thinking ooh I got away with that or no because normally you don't think oh I got away with it because normally you you're on a different uh, plane you're yeah. on a different level from worrying about if you're worrying about getting away with stuff you're not concentrating to a high enough degree there's a stage that, that stage in Argentina Ch I can't even remember what it's called Chiminko or Chiminko I'm not sure what it's called but it is like 125 kilometer an hour average speed or something like that it is w wickedly fast and both times through it last year we had quite a big moment at the same corner even though I adjusted that I went through it the second time but it wasn't a big moment as you know oh my god you know it was like uh, the, the only thing that was going through my mind was shit that's just affected out of my exit speed out of this corner and I've lost a second or half a second right. it wasn't a it's not a case of um, do you worrying think of anything other than what's going on in the car ever you do sometimes, yeah, but normally that's a distraction. It's normally a, a very bad thing to be doing. All the best times are always done when you're totally, totally clear and totally focused. And on a stage, then, the things that are going through your mind are just the instructions which are coming to you from Robert. Yeah, yeah. There's there's that. Also, you're, a lot of it is down to what you can see as well, um, but a lot. A lot of it is what's coming from Robert. How much is your vision impaired? Can you, how, what sort of percentage of your vision have you got? Or, or on an average stage, you must have dust and ice and fog. Uh, average it is normally okay, but okay, there are exceptions like in the Rally of Great Britain or in Sweden, there was some fog, or in Sweden, when it's dark and it's snowing, you can't see anything because the, the snow blinds you. Um, in Argentina sometimes it's foggy or it can be raining but the percent probably 80% of the stages are completely and if you get difficult visual, uh, visibility does that make it more risky and does that make you more put you on your metal more or does that make you feel better uh, it doesn't worry me it doesn't bother me because I know you always know that virtually regardless it's the same for everybody so you just get on with it um, it's not something which it's another factor that you have to take in like if it's raining then obviously that affects the grip but again if it's consistent then it's not a big issue um, so those those things 
patterns don't really enter your mind as being something that would affect your, your concentration. It's just another factor that goes in. Are you conscious of the landscape around you? Uh, you know, hills, uh, slopes down, villages, yeah. deserts? Yeah, you are, like in Kenya especially, you're very aware that you're a tiny, tiny piece of a huge landscape. Um, and you're driving through what feels like when you're on the road you can see every little detail every bump every rock every everything when you're up in a helicopter and you can see down on what's going on you think how strange it is to be just confined to those two dimensions on the ground and uh, to see how vast it all is when you're up there and how insignificant you are in it is quite a home to you, you know, how, how fickle it can be because there's so many, so many outside things that can affect it. What would the top speed be on any stage? What's the fastest you'll do? fastest I've ever been in a rally car is 239 kilometres an hour, 155 miles an hour in safari two years ago. That's, and I don't think I'll ever go faster than that either. That was downhill on a very smooth, very straight piece of road. And it took an age to slow the car down at the end of that because it was virtually flying at that speed. There's, the, the, the suspension's really high in safari. You have very little stability with the car at high speed. And it's, you know, it's all the time moving around, moving around. You're doing 150 And do you say to yourself, I have to be going at this speed. It's okay. Or do you think to yourself, I'll be looking forward to when this bit of high speed stuff is over. In Africa, you say you, you look forward to when that bit of high speed is over, but you do sit there thinking, especially in that, that was in the Subaru, thinking, no other car is going faster than this. I know that I'm taking time out of everybody. Therefore, whenever you have an advantage in a car, you have to make sure that when you have the advantage, you take absolute use of it, make as much use of it as possible, not always go to the strength of something. It's work on the strength. So where you can, you will go right up to the envelope of the car. You'll make it work its balls off. Yeah. When you're confident with the car, and when you know the car is performing probably better than any other car, then that is when you've got to push yourself as well. Okay, you push yourself all, all the time. But I think what... I, the, the biggest sort of, I would say, really big period of development in my career of, of driving was when I very first joined Super. When I first joined Super in 99, we, we had a car which wasn't that great and we struggled for the first five, six, seven rallies. And what you learn then is that you have to, to be able to get any chance of a decent result. I think, I, can, I think we finished the best result with something like fourth or even fifth in Portugal and the same fifth in Sweet, and I drove better probably than I've ever driven before, and better than on a few rallies that I've driven since. But just to get those points, but you, you realise how valuable those points are, and do everything you can to get them. So when we went through the period of development, then the car was good. We won in Greece, we won in Australia, and in RAC. To then come to uh, the beginning of 2000, which we got through the first few events, and then we had the 2000 car which was a big, 
step forward. It's the instant you're in that car, you have that, that extra motivation of knowing that it's a brilliant car and therefore you have to make the most of, of that period. So I think the period 99 into the beginning of 2000 was the best, the biggest sort of learning curve and the biggest stretching of my, my driving. Yeah, because it's down to you to give the extra bit because you know the car can't give you it. Yeah, and when the car can give you it, you know that then you have to show you can win. Otherwise, well... Yeah. <laughs> what? What's it smell like on those cars when you're going? Did you smell it? Did you tell what the smell is? Bad air from there. Very bad air. Stale? No, it's... It's heat. Yeah. It's dust. It's... If you open the window, you do get petrol fumes. Not petrol fumes, but you get a vapour because there is always a slight vapour and as soon as you release the pressure inside the car then that comes up. Is there a good smell and a bad smell? Do you ever get anything? Yeah, a bad smell is a new car because everything's burning, everything's singeing, everything's everything's running in and a, and a good smell is, I don't know, at the end of a, a muddy wet stage when all the mud is caked over the car, caked over the discs and the exhaust and you can smell the burning but it's it's under the under the mud and under the dirt and that's a different a very different smell. You can smell burning mud. You can smell burning mud. You can smell caked mud. Yeah. The smell in Portugal or RAC or New Zealand when it's wet, that smell is the same, is the same anywhere in the world, but always when it's when the car's caked. What are the sounds that you get when you have your helmet on? Is it purely and exclusively rubber, or can you hear the engine? You can hear the engine, you can hear the stones underneath the car. Um, you, the clearest thing you can hear is, is rubber, obviously. Um, but you do have to... Occasionally you can hear things going on outside, but rarely. You can sometimes hear, hear air horns going off. Um, you can... Can you hear the tyres and the wheels losing grip? Or anything off the tyres and the wheels? Or is that all in feel? You can hear it on tarmac if you've got it a little bit wrong and you're going very sideways and having a big slide. <coughs> you, can, you can hear, sometimes you can hear a Hollywood squeal going on. So if you can hear something like that, that's bad news? That's bad, yeah. Because you're, you're, you're going over the top. Right. You need to tidy up. So it's <coughs> the sound is principally... So you don't do anything by engine notes or by sound of engine? Mm, yeah, you do. I think you probably do more when you're really, really absolutely on it. You have a, a light or lights on the dashboard when you're supposed to change up. But I think when you're absolutely on it, you always hang on a few more revs than you would normally just because though that noise or that feeling gives an extra sense of urgency to you. To, to you. Gives an extra sense of, of speed to you and makes you feel that you're going better. Gives you another. Is there a difference in the way you behave when you drive the car between things going well and the way it's supposed to go, and things not going well? A difference in me. Yeah. I mean, do you drive a car differently? You behave differently? You know, is there more? I'm sure you're much more relaxed when things are going well. When things are going, when things are tight. Then, then you do have to sort of try and physically slow yourself down because you know that you're 
more often than not trying too hard to overcompensate for whatever, if you've had a problem or you're having a problem. It's always important to try and slow your brain down to a normal speed and try and relax like in... Okay, there's two examples in Sweden. One was when we bought the radiator and another one was um, uh, in between stages seven and eight. I spun on seven, blocked the radiator again, but right near the end of the stage, cleared all the thing out, um, then changed all the tyres and got back, or, you know, swapped tyres around, new tyre, blah, blah, blah. And then we had to average, because of all that unblocking, we had to average something like 140 or 150 kilometres an hour to get to the next stage on time, which we did, fortunately. And when that happens... And then, but then when you go into the next stage, you're like, right... I have to put my earpieces in, put my balaclava on, put my helmet on, put my gloves on, check I'm comfortable, sit down in the car, make sure the windows are decent, everything's demisted, Robert's got to be calm. Um, and then finally you do get to the start line, and we got to the start line, and then the marshal, ten seconds before he was supposed to go, started knocking on the window, telling us to put the lights on, and of course we didn't know what he was saying. So he was like, well, what do, does he want us to go? Does he want us to and then there's another last minute sort of panic, but literally as we're about to leave the start line, which is pretty bad news. And all, and all that time, you have to think, slow down, slow down, slow down. Because you go over the top, you're going to go off in the first corner because you haven't thought about it. You have to bring yourself. So how, how do you do it? How do you sit there and find the right mental level attitude approach to have to driving a stage? You know, it's not as if I don't think you have a choice, that's the thing, because you know if you don't get it, you know you're not going to do well. So you have to, you have to, you have to just tell yourself to, to be there. Because at the end of the day, nothing else matters. As long as you are in the car and you're ready to go, nothing else actually matters. So you just tell yourself, however big it might seem, I said to Robert, the marshal knock on the window. Unless he's going to stop us going, ignore the marshal, read your note, let's go. It doesn't matter at the end of the day, does it matter we haven't got our lights on? No, it doesn't. No, unless it's actually going to stop you doing what you're going to do, ignore it. Yeah. Is there any other time in your life when you are thinking about or working the way you work when you're at speed doing a stage? Is there any other skill, any other thing you do where the skills of driving at speed are required? There's nothing which envelops my mind or takes my mind over as much as that because there's nothing else that I can do as well as that in a way that so that I, I can't I know that if I'm in the car and driving well I know that's just, that's good enough to beat everybody if I'm doing something else for example skiing or riding a bike or running or whatever I'm nowhere near any kind of limit I mean, I might need be near my personal limit, but I know that's not a very high limit. So I never, I never have to be, I never have the satisfaction yeah. of knowing that what I'm doing is good enough to, to just let it go. You know, I'm always having to think, oh, do, what if this happens and that, that, that. In a running car, I don't, know, I don't get that feeling. So it's complete absorption that you're driving. It's complete when you're. Absolutely, 100% is complete. And what happens when you think, yeah, this is complete? 
Yeah, you do. You allow. You can allow. You. It happens. It's difficult to. It's difficult to explain. If you've let yourself think that, you're almost not doing it yeah. properly. Yeah. But sometimes you can. But sometimes you can do it. You know, in the in that that stage in Argentina, I would never. I would maybe. Yeah, you know, there's a couple of long strokes in it, and I would maybe think, yeah, this is going well, this is going well. But then I would instantly plop back into the next corner, and it's... What's it like when everything is a complete nightmare? It's a complete nightmare. Well, how does that change you? <laughs> um, I think you have to, again, try and take a step back. If things are going badly, you have to take a step back from it and think, okay, what can I get from this situation then you have to start thinking a little bit more methodically about what's what's happening because if you're not in a position to win then you have to reassess what you can achieve and then try and go for that but then it never quite envelops you as much as when you're in with the chance of, of winning but equally if you can set yourself another goal you could potentially if the run is long enough if someone else is unlucky enough or whatever you can potentially set yourself up to be back in the position where you can win. And it's easy to lose sight of the fact that you, that can happen, like, you know, what happened last year in the whole championship-wise. I didn't, halfway through the year, after Kenya, I didn't think, right, now, how am I going to win this championship from here on? I said, right, now, how am I going to get the best out of these last rallies? Not thinking about a championship at all, but how am I going to achieve the best on each of these rallies? How am I going to... What am I going to set my sights on? And I actually set my sights at that point in the year on beating Marcus and Harry in the championship. That's all I focused on. From Okay, the last rally was different because we were then in a position to win the championship. But after Kenya, I knew I was more than likely going to be moving to Peugeot and I wanted to be the person in the team who'd, won, who'd got the most points the year before. So that's what I set my focus on. And that takes the pressure away from what the ultimate objective might be. Yeah. But it allows, but it allows you to relax a little bit, but still. Focus. So to beat the big problem, i.e. the championship, you break it down into tiny little problems. Just achieve, just. Almost without knowing it, yeah. Almost without knowing it. To solve it, break a big problem down into smaller ones. Those are the stages. Achieve that. Achieve that. Achieve that. Yeah. And that might come. In the end, we still wouldn't have won. You know, if someone, if Colin had been more sensible, if Tommy had been more sensible, if whatever, then we wouldn't have won. And we might have been thinking, okay, but at least we achieved what we set out to do, which was to beat yeah. Harry and Marcus. Do you ever find yourself smiling or frowning in the car? Yeah. Frowning, I don't know, but smiling occasionally, yeah. What do you think about not normally, I wouldn't say perhaps in a stage, but certainly get to the end of a stage and you'd smile because you know that you've done. So there's a moment of release when you know you've done a good time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You, uh, I don't know, you know, because you know really, if you're driving a car which is competitive, you know that if you drive perfectly, and it's rare that you ever get to the end of a stage and you think, I could not have done that any better than I did. I did every corner 
but it's rare that that happens. Is that something you want to keep to yourself? You don't really want anybody else no, not really, because you know that everything you do gets caught anyway on the camera, so That's true. you can't, there's nothing you can get away with. But there's nothing wrong with smiling, or like we got away with a massive moment last year in New Zealand on one of the stages, and I just slapped Robert's leg or something and laughed, you know, because it's like, you can't cater for those things. We could have had the biggest accident we've ever had, but we didn't, so what, you know, what can you do? Remind me of that when we do stuff later on, and Dane and all that kind of stuff. Do you, do you, does it shake a lot in the car? No, it bumps. You get bumps and you don't really get vibrations. So you get very fine vibrations, perhaps, more on tarmac than you would on gravel um, from the engine because the engine is basically solidly mounted in the car. And you can, you can occasionally feel, when you get the anti-lag, the turbo anti-lag system, which is what creates the bangs and the pops, if you get a few big ones, if you get any big ones of those, you can feel it in the car because you can feel like an explosion behind you, you know. It can shake the, just as it shakes the ground when you're standing still, it shakes the air when you're, when you're moving and you can feel that. Um, but the biggest sensations come from the, from the surface that are always vertical or lateral. Do you, have you got your own personal tailor-made seat? Uh, not yet. But you do, drivers do do that? Mm, there's not, believe it or not, there's not that many who do. I want to, I want to get one from Recaro soon, but I don't know if that's relevant. But. Yeah, because I'm just thinking, can you feel if you put weight on Because those seats are really thin, I mean they're you sculpted. Can, you can feel, yeah, in your overalls, yeah. You more know. than you. Yeah, really? I don't, I rarely put weight on, but I did put weight on last year. At the end of last year, I put like three or four kilos on, and suddenly I can't zip up my overalls inside the car now. <laughs> when I'm sat in there, but when I, when I get a bit more fitness in me, then I'll, I'll be back to fighting weight. Yeah. So you've got, you know, I'm just thinking as you sit in the car, you know, there's a feel, isn't there? And you must get it from the from the seats. Do you also? Can you look at your car and think, yeah, it's got that feel? You tell us you where can get, I mean, the, the position, like the, a lot of the problem in the Peugeot early in the year has been the position of the seat and the steering wheel and the pedals because it's too small. And I like to sit low in the car and I like to sit relatively straight-legged. Um, but I like the wheel to be quite close to me. <coughs> and if I don't have that ratio right, then I do have trouble feeling the car because I like to feel... I don't really feel the car so much from with my head as I feel my fingers and my arse I always I have to I have to feel that I have good contact like the Peugeot problem is it's quite vague through the steering and I'm sat too high for me so then I've lost two of those senses and then also Monte Carlo we didn't quite get the throttle feeling right and you know all the, and if you take away that's that's if you say that hearing is an input your vision is an input, your touch is an input, your touch from left foot, right foot, hands and your arse. That's a lot of a lot of a percent a lot of percentage of senses taken away from you. And you need every one to be feeling. What's the concern? You sweat a lot of these things. Yeah, hell of a lot. Really? Yeah. And when do you when you start, when's the point what does it mean if you sweat a lot? 
Yeah, I sweat even like in Sweden. I sweat a lot. It's not really relative to any any rally. Obviously, you sweat more in hot events, but I'll drink on a normal rally. I drink about ten liters of water a day. Ten liters, twenty pints of water you get through a day. And can you drink while you're going along? I can. Yeah, I've got a Camelback uh, thing in the back of the car with a pipe, so I drink in stages as well. Yeah. actually because you have high speed and therefore you get airflow through the car the hottest by far is cypress cypress and grease cypress because a first of all it's nearly 40 degrees outside and b the average speed is rarely more than 40 miles an hour 60 kilometers an hour so you have no virtually no airflow through the car and even that when you're doing that speed you're going sideways so you don't get anything in actually from the front so those scoops on the roof unless you're actually going forward, don't do an awful lot. So they get, we, we saw 70 degrees inside the Subaru in Cyprus test last year. How much time do you spend going forward and looking forward? How much time do you spend going sideways and looking? Do you know what I mean? Um, you spend most of the time looking through the windscreen, believe it or not, but you do, if you get it, if you're getting it right again, if you're going, if you're going so sideways that you're looking out the side window, unless it's a low speed corner, then normally you're going, you've gone over the top because you've scrubbed off too much speed in the corner. If you're, if you're sideways in a slow speed corner, that much is not so. Do you aim with anything? Do you say, as I'm going into this corner, I'm going to... committed to the sport and are pioneers of the latest technology. Kielder cordless tools are tailored for all forms of competitive action. Go back to the future with the Kielder Works team.
Thank you for listening to this special edition of the podcast and for staying with the 20th century recording technology. This is John Desborough in conversation with Richard Burns, England's only World Rally champion. It's raw stuff, this, but he now moves on to the 1998 season. That's it. This is the year that things can happen, but it was, a, it was quite a relaxed year. It was still quite a relaxed year, even though there was a lot of effort going on. There were things... I've been approached by ProDrive in Portugal that year. I can't remember where we finished in Portugal. It was in the gearbox broke or something. Um, and I've been offered the drive the year after. To me, it seemed to be, make sense because I didn't really want to stay where Tommy was. Um, and that, I think, allowed a lot, of, a lot of relaxation from my point of view because I didn't have to prove anything. We were just gradually making the steps up. And the car was, well, you know, was pretty good. Yeah. Obviously, in those. Did the thought come into your mind there? Hang on a second. I've not really kind of proved myself anywhere in that this level. And already, I could have potentially have a Dutch auction. I could have Mitsubishi and Provo. No, not really, not really, because I didn't. I never really worked like that. In that, I wanted people fighting over me. I wanted to. I knew in my mind where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. And then, once I achieved that, I wouldn't then go. Ooh, but maybe that would be okay kind of thing. Once I made my decision, yeah. that was it, that was it. Yeah. Did, I mean, Portugal that year would have come after Safari? Just the first one after Safari, yeah. So, did they see you winning Safari, do you reckon? And they thought... Well, we winning Safari, and I was chipped, basically I was just gradually going up. I had two good rallies at the beginning of the year. I had Monty when I finished fifth, Sweden, I finished way down, but it's my first trip to Sweden, and I can tell you what happened there as well. And I got three fastest times or two fastest times. So I've made a few words. <laughs> He's a novice. Three fastest times. Now, to give you some idea, yeah. Special stage analysis: who got quickest times? Redstrom six, Sainz five, Mackinnon four, Burns three, Kankinen one. Nobody else got any. Right. So that's Safari. No, that's sweet. That's, sweet. that's the first time I've ever done sweet. I said three fastest times. So already plus I finished fifth in Monte Carlo. I didn't say any quickest times. Didn't finish fifth, so they see that. Then I'm. This is my first ever full championship year. I've never done Sweden. I've never done Monte Carlo. I've done Safari before. After Safari, I'm my third in the championship. Behind Sainz and Kankanen. So I'm, in front, I'm, leaving, I'm leaving Tommy in the World Championship. Yeah. I'm leading my teammate in the Championship. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in the middle of World Champions. So well, you've got a Monte Carlo come fifth, never having done it before. In a place where experience is everything, isn't it? Been around that place. Yeah. Uh, Sweden as well is school experience, yeah. but I didn't get any points there. So, first time in Sweden, you get three faster times, but you don't... I went off on stage two, nine minutes or ten minutes or something. When I got back on, bang, straight away. Which is what you did last year. Very annoying. Boy, it's Max. So then you go to Safari and win the thing. At which point you must have uh, caused eyebrows to be raised at program. I think they were obviously, I imagine, I don't know, but I imagine at the time they're obviously aware that Colin wants to go. I don't think we had great results at the beginning of that year, beginning of, of um, 
you are you're what you're one of two, but you're not millionaire status. You're no. not uh, getting what you know tires, gearboxes, cars that you want. Are you not thinking? Are you surprising yourself? Are you think to yourself, hey, look at this further championship, fastest tires, what a rally? No, because I'm. I was very comfortable with my surroundings then, very, very happy with my surroundings, um, with, the, with the people especially. Mitsubishi was a, was a fantastic team from the point of view that the guys on the ground were and are still su absolutely superb. They, they're not a big team by any means, but they all know they have to chip in, so they all know what everybody's doing, and, and they really, in the heat of the moment, those guys, you rely on those guys more than anybody else probably. You mean mechanics looking up people? Mechanics, yeah. yeah. Well, it's getting dirty for you. Yeah. Um, but further up the ladder, it wasn't as great a team as it was It wasn't a fabulous team. Again, I don't want to, you know, you mean slag anybody off. But it's, but it was run always like each year, oh, what's our budget going to be for next year? What's our budget going to be for next year? I really... In 97, I was offered initially four rallies to do, and it was only Andrew Cowan and Phil Short fighting, basically, that got me the eight rallies that I did. Yeah. I think it was eight rallies or six rallies or whatever, but without them, I'd have just been doing four rallies. Yeah. I would have been well, Phil and Andrew, your big allies in that team at the time. Yeah, definitely, yeah. I think so, yeah, especially Phil, I would say. Especially Phil, he pulled out a lot of stops, I think, to... Did they go out on a limb for you to get you in in, 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 the, in the first place? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. But you didn't feel after three rounds. What? You go to Portugal. They've gone out on a limb. You're going quite well. Or pro drive get on the phone. You don't didn't think. No, because again, I was thinking what was best for me. You know, if you stick around where um, you're just doing things for other people the whole time, then you're never going to get anywhere. Yeah. Um, I was doing. I was thinking what would be best for my future, yeah. my career, and that it seemed to me to be the perfect opening because I didn't see anybody in the team that I couldn't beat and couldn't challenge yeah. on every on every event. Um, initially, it was only going to be me and Bruno, and then I remember in late October, or October, then Cankerdam was confirmed as well. And in a way, that was like well, that's a bit of a shock. Three cars not going to be very good running three cars.
97 second, 98 first, 99 I was leading and retired with the bolt fatigue. I won it in 2000 and 2001. Halfway through that section, I was within, I was second fastest by one second. Halfway through the section, quick. So I know Safari and I knew, I knew, okay, it was only the second time that I'd done it in that car, but yeah. I, I just had the feeling. But a regular car wrecker, where roads aren't roads, they're, well, tracks at best, and you go on for considerable numbers of miles. Yeah, we, after that, was probably, it was probably 100 kilometer section and we did 20 odd, 20 odd K before we broke the thing, 15 K, so there was still another 80 K to go. And I'm literally, the thing is, after after a while, after 20k or something, you think, you know, that then, if it doesn't fail by now, it's unlikely to fail. So, keep going, keep yeah. going, keep yeah. going. And I'm calling to my helicopter to have a look at the front of the car. Is there anything hanging off? Is there steam pissing it? Is there what? No, everything looks okay. Everything looks fine. No problem. Um, um, um. Um, and you get up on the, uh, you drive up on the ramp. You uh, shake the champagne and take the uh, plaudits. And what's going through your head? Not an awful lot. I can't. <laughs> it doesn't really over these days. Just, you know, thing is with rallies, you have elation the moment you finish the cross, go over the cross to the finish line. Yeah. And then you see the mechanics of the service it. By the time you get to the ramp, the rally's been won for two hours. Yeah. So your mood, not your mood, but your excitement has has come back down and you're just thinking, you're satisfied, you're satisfied and you're happy, but so you don't have the... Guys like me would come to you and say, oh shit, rally, next best thing, you know, greatest thing to slice bread, you can give them a credit, you know how we all think. Did you get that kind of reaction? Did the press boys come up and say, you know, start building you up. Did you get any of that? Do you know what I can't remember? No, I think there was because there, there was a fair bit going on because I mean it's worth you know, you have to look through old magazines and stuff, but I was then third in the championship yeah. and I was running strongly on all those rallies and um cool, yeah, cool, something was something was going on. It wasn't so much unexpected, it just took a long time in coming, you know. Do you remember ProDrive's call? To say, and what were the first words? No, the ProDrive call was um, David Lapworth talking to me at a time control in Portugal at one of the service areas. You know, halfway through the first day or something. The second day, I can't remember which day, but it was like leaving the window, oh, how's it going? Um, when you get back to uh, England, give us a ring. And I can remember the first meetings, I can remember the restaurant where I had the first meetings with Lampard. Did you have to do it secretly? Fairly secretly, yeah, because it's just not a side of thing you want to go blabbing about when you're just at the initial stages of it all. Yeah. And where was the restaurant? It's called Dexter's. Deddington. Which is all a bit too rhyming, isn't it? Deddington is between Oxford and Banbury on the A road, not the motorway, but halfway. And uh, you sort of drove in and he was sat at the table and said, And you, you knew what was going? Yeah, there's only one thing they want to chat to you about. Yeah. 
were ready to, you were shopping in Hungary or uh, you were just... No, because I wanted to know, you know, my, my aim was like, right, I want to be in a team where I can be the number one, where I can establish myself, where, da da da, and I, like I said last time, when, um, when I was at ProDrive and when I was leaving, in many ways I, I did think that the only way to develop would be to leave, or yeah. the only way to, to stay with, to be at ProDrive and be a, be, go through the ranks is to leave and come back. Yeah. So, in, in many ways it wasn't expected, but it was like, yeah, I'm ready to do this now. Yeah. Because that would have been three years of Mitsubishi, two doing the Asia Pacific and Bits, yeah. and then third being the yeah. Championship. Yeah, first. And you remember, was the offer, wow, that's even better than I think. I mean, can you tell us the no, offer? Because I wanted to, no, not, not really. Um, it was better financially by a significant amount. Yeah. That was really because in um, Mitsubishi, I was. Not disposable, but there were more drivers around than there were drives. Right. The second Mitsubishi drive was a very good drive, so yeah. Yeah. I wasn't going to be the. You know, if I start saying, "Oh, I'm not driving for that," this hour, I'll find somebody will. Yeah. You know, but that situation wasn't the same. That pro drive was a Mitsubishi at that stage. Was it the Tommy Mackinac team, and you just happened to have to fit around? Whatever. It wasn't. It, it. It wasn't. It wasn't because that's probably that's being too simplistic and being a bit derogatory about the team to say that but when you're when you're in a team with someone it's like Rubens Barrichello could be a could be a world champion if he was in McLaren but he's not going to be whilst he's in a team with Michael Schumacher yeah. at Ferrari yeah because he just won't be allowed to be probably yeah basically I don't think I would have been stopped to be champion yeah but you but Tommy was on top four and could ride his luck magnificently, fantastically, and have a lot more experience than me. So I was always going to be, it was always going to be difficult for me to go from here to there. Yeah. Where, where he was, you know, experience isn't the thing that just plateaus. Yeah. You keep on stacking it up, stacking up, stacking up. So I was never going to catch it. I needed to come in from somewhere else and attack it. Yeah. And with were different, you, with different. And Tommy ever in confrontation? about something, I want those tyres, I want that car, I'm leading this one. No. You, that, it never got to that sort of pointing, no. jabbing at the chest moment. No. But no, I got like, told in Greece in 97 to, uh, to back off. I was in a service area, we had to, we had to, the last service area, the day we got, well, I finished, it should have been third, I finished fourth. Because? For, for team orders, because Tommy was leaving, you know, I was only doing six rallies and seven rallies, so therefore yeah. I'm not going to win the championship, the team would get the same amount of points, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So that never happened in 98? It never happened in 98, no. Did Mitsubishi come back and say, oh, we understand, Richard, ProDrive have? No, because to be honest, they couldn't, through no fault of their own, they couldn't really afford, they understood my argument. Yeah. and knew that they weren't going to be able to yeah. match a few and it's not just the it isn't just the financial thing it's the they, they, they knew that what I was being offered was basically leadership of the team yeah I could take it yeah and um, that's they knew they were very very understanding and gentlemen about it mm. <coughs> and then the running of Great Britain, is that another highlight of 
we need to throw in here before we really uh, fall over. I led 
it was the old running order thing. Yeah. I went like hell on the first day, tried to build up as big a lead yeah. as possible, and I ended up the first. So you're consistent. You're getting fastest times on a regular basis. So here's on, my, on day one, I wanted to build up a lead, and I did. Stage one, Oriole fast, two, McRae, third one, we were, fourth, Oriole, and then stage five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten, we were quickest time. That's Australia. Australia on the first day, so I dominated it. I led. Yeah. I started the second day, first car in a row, which you don't want to do, but I just accepted the punishment yeah. because I had a minute's lead. I just accepted it and went for it. And um, I rolled on the second stage of that day. Dropped, dropped, the dropped in a minute. Sorry? Wait on the spectator. No, I rolled back onto the wheels. Oh, Lost a minute because it crushed the turbo pipe and stuff, cracked on during the day and then went like hell again the last day. But I was like on it, on it, on it, on it. The whole rally, really good rally from that point of view. Yeah. And ended up crashing on the last day, whilst it within sight of maybe winning. But I wasn't, I didn't give a shit. I was like, I am going to fucking win. I am going to win. And if I didn't, I didn't. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a disaster. So as long as it winning is something which is kind of foreign and a bit frightening, it's a... Uh, no, it's a real really prospect. Yeah. And here you are, first WRC season with wind under your belt, going for more, and just having a ball. Having a ball, totally having a ball. Totally. A man or machine or more. I loved it. I absolutely just had a superb, superb time. I mean, Rally GB, we ended up. <coughs> that was uh, Colin, I think, on that rally. Bill had got into uh, the end of the first day, we then we went quicker, and he went quicker, and he was about 20 seconds in the lead, his engine's turbo blew on, his engine blew up or something. But uh, we were so far ahead of everybody else that like, it did not matter. Yeah. I, ended up, I ended up four minutes, I won by four minutes. What was that at RAC? Yeah. Where was Kirk? Uh, Carlos was coming in. Carlos was lying third, I think, or four. was after points, wasn't he? He just needed to finish there, third, fourth, and that was it. Because yeah. Tommy was out after having gone off that oil, wasn't it, on the Friday? Yeah. Uh, it was one of those situations where um, Carlos' points would have taken him past Tommy. But then he expired. That's part of the problem. Yeah. Over the finish line, basically. Or the 400 metres before the finish. What did, you, did, you, I mean, did you have any reaction to that at the time? Did you not think? How can you, you know, get that close? I mean, that's within. Was there any sympathy? Not really, no, because I just won the RAC. So <laughs> you know, it really didn't interest me why I was in the championship, because I wasn't in the championship, really. Yeah. I don't know, you know, we finished whatever, fifth or sixth in the championship, but yeah. it really didn't. Didn't affect. It didn't affect me, apart from the fact that the obvious publicity was had gone there that way. And it was like that was what the important story rather than us winning the rally. But at the end of the day, I didn't really. I'd rewarded the team. I'd, um, I'd had a great fight. Okay, Colin, Colin was in front of us, but at the end of the day, we'd been at least been in here. Yeah. Same as we had been the year before, and we'd come out on top, and that was, yeah. that was the main thing. And also, I mean, 98, you would beat Colin because he did it in 94, 95, 97. So he's sort of the defending champ of the RAC, stroking him with a few, whatever. 
take that away from Colin. Yeah. Yeah. Something to take away. Yeah. It was, a, it was two things. First of all, it was, I wanted to be, of course, I wanted to be Colin at home. There's no question about that. Secondly, I wanted to reinforce the fact that no other foreign driver, no foreign driver had won the rally for quite a few years. And I wanted to reinforce that. I wanted to make sure that when we came back the year after, fighting for the championship and the year after that, they came into it thinking, shit, how the hell are we going to beat these guys yeah. on this rally because we haven't done it before? Yeah. Get very patriotic. Play, play. No, it's patriotic, but it's... It may well be that it's, it would be the same on any rally if it was the last rally of the championship. Regardless of your situation in the championship, if you can stamp authority on it, if you did get to that point when that rally is crucial, like last year, yeah. I can look back on last, last year's RAC and say, well, I've the last three years. Yeah. No one's got close, so yeah. what have I got to worry about? You know? yeah. have that confidence. It's a big size college. hasn't won it since 97 and has crashed out of it now the last three years. So if we come into the rally this year in the same situation, yeah. what's his state of mind? Yeah, Hornbrook is yeah. favouring you at that point. Yeah. Yeah, he's going to have all the baggage of the previous years worrying him. This is Absolute Rally. Whether it's the pressures of service or an issue out on the stages, it's vital to have the right equipment to hand. Kielder cordless tools are tailored for the world of motorsport and are being used throughout all forms of competition. Go back to the future with the Kielder Works team. To finish this edition of the pod, we go back to the very beginning. And this is Richard Burns talking about his early days and the very first time he drove a car. Not a rally car, nothing. What was it? I would. Um, <clears throat> very first time I drove a car, I was eight years old. Eight? You drove it? I drove a car at eight years old. Yeah. What were you doing that for? I cannot remember. I cannot honestly remember. But it was... A few, it was because I think my sister was in the pony club and whenever we went, went to something, I could always reverse the trailer with the horses, you know, I could always reverse it, you know, which isn't the easiest thing to do, not many people can do, and I could do it. So I always got that job, and at eight, at eight, and then... She used to go to these summer camps where they go for a week or two weeks or whatever. And um, whenever I used to go and pick her up or take her there or whatever, I would just I would always drive in the field. Somehow I would pester my mother into letting me drive. And uh, she used to sometimes go and do the breakfast for you know all the mothers volunteered to do this that, and the other. And sometimes she go and do breakfast. And while she was doing that, I used to literally go and steal the car or find an excuse to move it or something and go driving around. I did want to actually crash into the horse boxes, into the state. They had like temporary stables and I actually I crashed into them once. Fortunately, quite slowly, but it was quite amusing. But I 
obviously you scare park everybody else's cars as well, everybody else's trailers, because not many mothers could do it. Why? What was this fixation? Uh, I don't know, whatever fixation you have when you're a kid that you have to do something, or you want to do something, and you do it, and you love doing it. Is that story true in David's book that you could recognise a car coming past your house by the engine? We're just about, yeah. I knew, I knew every single car on the road. I used to read auto car every week motor news no not motor news actually at that age just normal just normal stuff did you have favourites Porsches did you draw them as well posters on yeah everything full full on full on thing and I was a car nut and was it displayed when everybody else I suppose would have to wait until I won 
driving, a general driving um, ability test which would get you the grades. And then they have, have something that they called a skill test, which was basically an auto test, but it was much tighter. It was always like three inches either side of the car and at the back. Um, and I won that every year from when I was 12 to when I left, basically. Well, what did you have to do then? What, what was involved? What was the standard sort of day at the weekend? Um, a standard day would be to leave at like eight o'clock in the Sunday morning which was quite effort to get Dad out of bed at that time on Sunday morning, as you can imagine, my dad's want to stay in bed. Um, go to the club, help set out, like for example, if it was Castle Coombe, you just help set out, because you'd set out in the paddock, parking areas with cones and stuff like that, so people could practice reversing and turning circles and just various little manoeuvres to practice. Um, and of course, once you, when you're, up to the level where you can drive by yourself. There's like a, there was like a hard core of about four or five parents and, and kids who would go and do that. Um, and go and set up all the, set all that up. But the kids were all level where they could drive by themselves. So we used to go, the parents would arrive, have coffee and talk and that. Whereas the kids would be like, we'd be off, 100 mile an hour, handbrake turning everywhere people in the boot hanging out with cones, throwing the cones out of the boot. The floor, it, it became a lot more sanitised sort of towards when I was leaving the club. And then after I left, it's become a lot more... What's the word? Formal. Yeah, formal. There's a French phrase for it, isn't it? You know, like... Uh, but, you know, toned down. Yeah. And I think the days that we were there were, they were like the heyday of the cowboy in the club, you know. We used to go and do... Would, would 
time. Yeah. No idea. Really no idea what he was doing because I didn't really follow racing and rallying at that age, not until I was 15. But he was a rally driver? He did some rallies, but he was mainly a racing driver. But he did do some rallies, yeah. I think he did, like, won the Welsh in a mini or something like that in the 60s. Yeah. But he's mainly known as a rally racing driver. So they, the purpose of it was to teach you how to drive? Yeah. And it was, it was the, like, the slogan of the club or whatever was, like, you are, you know, for, for kids who enjoy motoring and motorsport or something, you know. But it wasn't, it was never, like, you couldn't join if you were older than 15 because then people would join just to learn how to drive before they got on the road. Yeah, yeah. So anybody who was 15 and tried to join couldn't. Right. You had to be younger than that when you very first started. And what, you did all sorts of cars and vehicles? Or? I kept a list of it, and I still have it probably at my parents' house, a list. Really? And it was like, there's sort of like 150 or 200 different cars that I drove. Other that people's cars, other, you know, other friends in the club, the club cars. Yeah, a lot of cars. Do you remember first feeling or thrill of speed? Um, not, not really, because I was just. I just loved the driving. I remember, I remember being driven around by by Barry Williams. <coughs> and he had a his road car was a rear wheel drive Toyota Corolla 16 valve, which were the absolute bizzo, and they weren't rallying as well, the rear wheel drive ones. Um, in the in the rain at Silverstone, going because we used to like have higher half the track because the, the small track would be used for the circuit, school, racing school, whatever. And we used to rent the other side of the track and have it two-way. And he took us round at lunchtime, I remember being in that and thinking, Jesus, you know. Right. Absolutely amazed that anybody could go round, well, as people probably now do with me. I was sat in that car thinking, how the hell did we get round that corner? How old were you? Fourteen. And that would have been, what, Southern Circuit of Silverstone or something? Not, yeah. Not the Southern Circuit, but like the bit, it used to be, they'd have the National right. course, and it would be the rest of the track, so it'd be Hangar, Stowe, Club, up to Abbey, yeah. and then Uwe. Yeah. It'd just be two-way, you know? Right. Have cones separated. And he was doing that, what, to give you an idea of, he was just showing off? Sure, yeah, showing off, having a laugh, because it was, it, was, it was meant to be, when they started it, a, a fun motor club. In your latest Elise trip, Lotus. Spree Turbo. Spree Turbo. Yeah. At 100 miles an hour, you didn't have that thought. Wee-hee! Uh, yeah, you do, but I didn't think... You know, same as always, I've always wanted to go fast. <laughs> I've always wanted to. Did you, um... Think at that point, I'm a bit of a naturalist. What did anybody say? You know, no, because we were all just classed as hooligans, you know? We were... We were having a laugh and we were doing it well, you know, for kids to do that was amazing, absolutely amazing. So we, I don't know what the parents thought. There were some, there were the odd, there were some people there who, uh, like there was a guy <coughs> called Brian Starr who I met again.
again recently. At the, there was a reunion last year, beginning of last year. Um, and he was, the, he was the, the chairman when I first joined. And he had some sons, uh, a uh, son who was older than me, about four, three or four years older than me. But he stayed on in the club after his son left. And he had, uh, I think he's still got it actually, because he bought one of the first Sierra Cosmos white two-door in 1987 or something like that and he's still got it now and I remember him I remember going when he first got it and being and being allowed to drive it around and then when I was 20 21 I'd won the national championship I went back for a weekend and he was there in his car for the weekend you know to, to just we went, we went back just to sort of say hello to everybody and I took him round, he used to teach me how to drive his CR, and I took him round to Castle Coombe and scared the shit out of him. You know, left foot braking, just, you know, to, and, you know, I'd just gone in the previous, in the years before, obviously, from when I'd last driven the car to him. I was like, Sierra Cosworth. Sure. Yeah, well, imagine that, you know, people come back as the master. Mm. That's spooky. And I still owe him a drive in the rally car now because he came to the day before the RAC that was abandoned. Oh, right. Where I went when I rolled the car. He came to that. Oh, right. He was due to give him a, a ride in that. Which was just last year, wasn't it? Yeah. So you still owe him one. I do. Um, um, was there... I mean, was, was this just complete and utter fun or was there a sort of a sacrifice involved here? I suppose the sacrifice at that time was that was school because, or, or relationships at school, because every weekend when normal, when all the kids would be getting together and doing, going to their mates' houses and all that stuff, I was like, why do I want to do that? I'm going to drive a car all weekend. Yeah. What do I want to do that for? That was a, but it wasn't a sacrifice because... You were doing something which was far better. Yeah, so I, don't, I didn't see it as a sacrifice at all. It was just a natural thing. Day at school, what were, what were they saying? I mean, did you talk about it at school? Yeah, but the thing is that you know, who the hell believes you half the time? I think that was the problem. Yeah. Half of them, half of them didn't believe you, and the half that did would be probably jealous or or didn't understand quite your infatuation with it. Or you know, they were into other things. They were into music or air rifles or whatever the latest. Uh, personal stereo you had to have, well, you know, all that yeah. bollocks, yeah. which I was just so far out of. Yeah. So far out. And did that kind of exclude you from, you know, what kids like at school as the sort of the gang, the group? Did that? Yeah. You found yourself on the outside of it? Yeah. Yeah. I hated school, I absolutely hated school. Because of that, or just because? I would think. A lot because of that, a lot because I didn't enjoy doing the work, which no kid does, I don't think. Well, not many kids do. Um, and a lot was because my mind was always elsewhere, thinking of the weekend or something. You, you could guarantee every day you'd be thinking about the car that would be... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, you abstracted in class, I bet. I wasn't a model student, that's for sure. Yeah. Although for some reason they made me a prefect. That was my secondary school. Fuck knows why. Because you were Knows why, yeah, probably. Were you above average height at school? Yeah. yeah. And what was the school's sort of reputation like? I mean, did it? 
Gillett's comprehensive. Gillett's G I double L O double T S. Um, what was that Reading? Henley. Henley. What was their reputation? It was a local comprehensive. There were three. You were there because you were in that area. I was actually closer to one called Langtree, which was in Woodcote, which is supposed to, it was uh, that was the closest one. Then Chilton Edge, which was in Sonic Common, which is also pretty close, and then Gillett's, but Gillett's was supposed to be the best one. Out of all of them, they had a swimming pool and they had to get the ground, and it, you know, it was like it was supposed to be the nicest one. But yeah. Was there anything there that, I mean, if we got your report out, what would it say on there that you were quoted Could do better, and, you know, if he committed himself, I would think. But you would have done better. I got I got six O levels. I was like I was like my year was the last year of O levels. I did okay, but I never I, I was no, but I never wanted to do any of that. You know, I just really did not have the the, the patience. Or I used to question because I was so allowed so much freedom in the other part of my life. I used to get into trouble for questioning the teachers quite a lot. Because I would ask, I would question, not not so much their authority, but, you know, why, 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 why? And I would get chucked out of the class quite regularly to stand outside in the hallway for the whole lesson and then yeah. given all the bloody work to copy out. But I, it is literally probably because I was allowed, because the other side of my life was, was grown up, yeah. was, you know, allowed to make own decisions and take a hell of a lot more responsibility than you were in school. Yeah. Did you have a favourite subject? We had a cool teacher in college and it was a class called it was something to do with real life basically where you had to go down the bank and do stuff and write reports and things like that but the guy who taught that who was like life studies or something like that was quite was cool and used to be take a real interest and you know not, never knock it always always help everybody with everything that they wanted to do. You friendly with anybody to go from school? Only this guy, Ashley. This guy was, he actually lived next door to where I lived up until when I was eight. What was his name again? Ashley. 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 Agar. A-G-A-R. And he was the only one pretty much that's... He's the only one that, that I still keep in touch with now. Did he do the same thing? He was getting in trouble as well then? Not really, no. He used to get picked on like mad at school because he was even taller than me. And he was really athletic as well, you know. He was he used to be really good at running and tennis. He really became a tennis coach after he left school and stuff like that. There was another guy, there was actually one guy in my class. Have you heard of a guy called Robert Warner? No. M mountain biking and stuff like that. When I when we were at school, he was on um, junior kickstart oh, a couple really? of times, but never won anything. Yeah. But he became world downhill mountain bike champion and he lives in he came from, comes from Russell's Water near, near Henley and we were in the same year at Gillett's and he used to muck around like crazy he was doesn't surprise me at all but he did but he became what he became yeah he was probably doing some sort of thing to you at yeah the every weekend, weekend on, the, on his mountain bike and stuff on his motorbikes yeah all cool. which is, yeah on the side yeah where was home uh, during school? <coughs> Where my parents still live now. In, uh, it is called Walnut Tree Farm. And it's like an old, 
an old pig farm without buildings, which is where my rally cars were built in the early years. And it's like three, three and a half acres, and it's an old schoolhouse, actually. You're going that way, aren't you? Not here, boys. I'm referring to her sister. Where are they?
Stuart, this is Jack. So he said, and I'm like, well, what do I do? What do I do? I'm like mad for it, obviously. And he said, go and find your local motor club, go and join it, go in there and go out, and right. da 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 da. Great. Crazy. But just to go back, the Welsh Forest thing with Jan, that was a birthday present? Yeah. Birthday. And was that the picture of the Escort going sideways? Yeah. Which is in David's book. Was that the, the first rally car you ever joined? I don't know if it's in the actual picture, it probably wouldn't be in. Oh, maybe. I don't know. There's an Escort going sideways on a lot of ground. Afterwards, it was like, right, that's it. I want to drive a rally car. What do I do next? What do I do next? <clears throat> and from that moment, I <coughs> my time was split <coughs> then between going to school and college, <coughs> working at the weekends, going to motor club meetings, Wednesday evenings at Re old Reading Inns and rugby club where they still meet uh, mastering on rallies mechanicing on rallies for, for this guy Keith Edwards and for Berwick um, co-driving I co-drove on some road rallies and some stage rallies as well because you could do that when you were 15 or six, 16 I think 16 so when I'm 15 I guess that's fourth year isn't it that's yeah first year of high levels yeah yeah right see well I wasn't really that interested I was too busy doing other things yeah. and when I first I got my first rally car like, at like 15 and a half it was a Talbot Sunbeam 1.6 automatic which obviously needed converting but one of the guys up the club Gordon Jarvis found the car and found some found the bits and, yeah. and basically I spent a year and a half building that rally car so after having gone to rally school being told you've got to go and find a club. Yeah. And then went and found Craven. Yeah. And found Gordon Jarvis. Yeah. Hence the picture, hence the car. Yeah. Which gave you 60. Yeah. Who, who shows up for 100 quid? Dad. Birth Did you really? Birthday present, yeah. Right. Just got a big birthday present. <laughs> Your mum and dad are thinking, what at this stage? I don't know, you better ask them, I suppose, but they're probably thinking... I don't know, it's difficult because I assume when you're a parent, and I, I could be wrong, but if your child knows... I think the biggest problem around the whole world is that nobody actually knows what they want to do. Very few people are in a job that they love and are doing what they want to do. People are going to work to earn money, and I assume because I, because I never had anything other than support from them that they were happy that I'd found some. I was so involved in something that I really loved, yeah. and I I can only assume that they just they they helped me pursue it because they they, they saw and I also they saw like. I did not want to do anything else. There was nothing else that would interest interested me. And when I think now of the things that I used to do to become involved in it, and I think like a few 
if you if I see young drivers now, I say young drivers, I'm not exactly old, but people who are wanting to start now, and you ask them what commitments they make to running and all that stuff, they they don't even scratch the surface of what I used to do. Yeah. Don't even scratch the surface. You know, my whole life was rallying. And in some cases it's it's not their fault because they've got other responsibilities. They've got to live, they've got to work, they've got to do, you know. But so I was fortunate in in that I was always living at home, I didn't have any outlay other than actually uh, going, other than rallying, I had no other outlay, so all my money, everything went on that. Did you realise, or did you ever have those moments of doubt where you thought, where you, you, know, you went down the pub or you went out to the sort of sixth form disco or whatever with friends and thought, hang on a second, I'm missing all this fun. Yeah, no, because to me it wasn't really that fun. That's the thing, the fun I had was with the people that had the same interest as me. Yeah. So it wasn't, I wasn't missing out. Absolute Rally. Powered by the Kielder Works team. Spread the word and download the podcast every week.